Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, there are a few copies of a small uh, handout because, uh, in part anyway, 50%, because I'm going to use a lot of terms that are neologisms peculiar to uh, Eric Bogland. So I, I think Bogland's vocabulary, uh, because it was in part developed to uh, <coughs> describe uh, the philosophical and cultural events that I'm talking about, it is the best, uh, but it is a little bit, uh, they are neologisms and they're a little bit unfamiliar. That's the second uh, section of the, the handout. The ideas there, by saying ideas, I'm making an allusion to Richard Weaver's notion that ideas have consequences, uh, and we'll see how that works out. Uh, <clears throat> okay. So <clears throat> the, uh, the title, of this afternoon's colloquium, uh, Chadia, the Basis of Anti-Culture and Pneumopathology in Air-Conditioned Health, of course refers to uh, or alludes to Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Uh, and the air-conditioned hell expression is an allusion many of y'all would recognize to the second chapter of John Senior's uh, Restoration of Christian Culture, which, which was about the air-conditioned holocaust. Um, and I changed the term to hell for uh, the following reason. Uh, <clears throat> hell is a permanent state of narcissistic closure called, caused by apostatic, ap I'm sorry, uh, called by uh, apostatic revolt. And those are uh, Vogelin's terms, but it makes the use of the term hell exactly uh, le mot juste. In the, uh, in the title, if I may say so. So, <clears throat> Joseph Pieper's book, Leisure of the Basis of Culture, is the obvious background of the essay. Uh, <clears throat> and this essay focuses on the consequences of the denial of Pieper's argument. The language is drawn from Philip Reif, especially from his 1966 Triumph of the Therapeutic, from Charles Taylor's Secular Age, uh, and from Carl Truman's very recent book, uh, about a year ago, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, <clears throat> I've tried to take these works in a larger context uh, of several representative works of Eric Vogelin, including Volume 5 of Order and History and Anamnesis. Uh, <clears throat> those of you or anyone who is familiar with Vogelin uh, will also recognize echoes of the first volume of, uh, of Order and History as well. Uh, <clears throat> In the first part of the essay, which is in three parts, uh, I attempt to provide a doctrine of leisure, wonder, and culture following Joseph Pieper. In the second part, I <clears throat> attempt some genealogical considerations about the counterposition uh, towards their con consequences. And in the third and final part, um, I try to point to 20th century existential impacts of the modern rejection of the great classical and Christian pre-modern tradition. Much, 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 much more should be said about uh, every, anything uh, upon which I will touch. This is merely uh, a sketch. <clears throat> so part one, this will be a familiar recitation to almost everyone here, 
uh, in Leisure, the Basis of Culture, Joseph Pieper examines the world of total work. And while Pieper wrote the book in 1948, in a world still recovering after the war, uh, the book is of permanent worth. <clears throat> in those days, it might have seemed to some people that that was not the time for leisure because there was so much important work to be done. Europe had to be rebuilt. And according to such a mentality, leisure would only be allowed for the sake of returning, refreshed, to yet more work. Leisure was not only then secondary to work, but it was colored by its intimate association in work. Leisure was a mere condition for undertaking work. Ironically, then leisure was reduced to utility. The alternative is to propose that work is for the sake of leisure. And Joseph Pieper wrote this book, he wrote his book, as an apologia for the thesis that leisure is not only not for the sake of work, but that leisure is the very basis of culture. By culture here is understood, <coughs> by culture here is understood the building up and the achievement, so far as possible, of what is properly human. The very word suggests growth, as in agriculture, where plants and animals are cultivated and grown, developed according to their own natural potentialities. It's also helpful while identifying culture, following now for a moment Jonathan Sachs, to mention that in culture, man knows and conserves the order of being and also acts according to his own nature, quote Sachs, to go beyond the state of creation. The Hebrew word, I won't pronounce this correctly, but le'ovda, le uh, means not merely to maintain the original standard, <clears throat> rather it gives the right and the duty to transcend it, to create something better, as it were. To accept human nature implies to accept its kinetic drive, both in knowing, bios theoretica, and also in making and doing, facienda and agenda. <clears throat> Aristotle famously held that leisure is the precondition for philosophy. That is, for asking as far as may be possible and answering equally as far as may be possible such uniquely human questions as who am I, where do I come from, where am I, uh, unto what end am I living, and how shall I prosecute my life. <clears throat> Given leisure as a precondition, philosophy may arise from experience due to wonder, as in wondering over the wise of the world of experience. For Aristotle, this might have meant wonder about the constant changes of the physical environment, stellar and planetary motion, agricultural and tidal cycles, the regeneration of animals, for example. Aristotle's wonder was piqued by what John Sr. called gymnastic knowledge, that is to say, first-hand experiential knowledge of the natural world. We may add to this the acutely existential wonder that is operative in Jewish thought, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Old Testament. Abraham Heschel echoes Aristotle, but Heschel must have wondered also at the record of the Old Testament with its existential account of the Jews' hopes, fears, agony, suffering, sorrow, and anger interlocking with solace, joy, ecstasy, and the reception of divine eruption. Heschel calls wonder not only, quote, radical amazement, 
but also, quote, higher incomprehension of the world around us and at our very selves in knowing and living within it. The acuity of wonder is found, according to Heschel, as with St. Thomas in small things. Heschel says, the minimum of perception is a maximum of enigma. Surely Heschel was uncomprehending as he faced the human predicament in Old Testament history. Further, wonder anchors philosophy in real life. And it precludes the pseudo-philosophical claims of ideology, as well as what Frank O'Malley referred to as academicism. In the act of wonder, human learning and knowing are at least inchoately appreciative of the gift of what is. Wonderful expression of Father Charles. The truth and the goodness of the real in one's own encounter with what is. This appreciation humbles the philosopher because the real remains mysterious, incomprehensible and amazing in Heschel's words, which echoes St. Thomas's insistence that the greatest philosopher does not even understand the smallest insect. And this appreciation invites the response of gratitude by which the receiver returns unto the source of the gift to God himself, ultimately, as St. Thomas says in Secunda Secundae of Sima Theologiae 106. <clears throat> Further, wonder also humbles the philosopher because to know is to submit to the demands of the recalcitrant real. Every act of learning, every act of knowing is an act of submission, an emblem of humility. The real impinges on the mind and the senses unbidden it comes as a gift. The fundamental structure of the world is gifts. Lovely expression from R.J. Snell. Gratitude is generated from the superfluity of the gift of meeting the real, and therefore of being met by the real, especially as this exceeds both ordinary needs and even the human capacity for reception. Existence itself is a gift precisely because it is neither deserved nor earned. The word, by using the word meeting, I intend to allude to and now refer to and to underscore the ultimately interpersonal nature of the encounter with the real by alluding to Martin Buber's doctrine endorsed later on by C.S. Lewis. It took Lewis about 10 years to adjust to this, uh, uh, to um, I and thou. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, real life is meeting. In self-knowledge, <clears throat> uh, man finds the infinite abyss within himself, and therefore the end unto which he is made through his kapax dei, his craving for God, as expressed in Psalms, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, Dante, Pascal, great mystics such as St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. And so passionate is this kinesis, that Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz says, muero porque no muero, I'm dying because I'm not dead. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, powerful. Inherently ordered to God, man cannot really live without God. And any effort to do so is bound to the frustration and anger of absurdity 
restlessness in St. Augustine's term, chronic existential anxiety in contemporary psychological argot, vanity in the language of the Bible. <clears throat> in Eric Vogelin's language, kinesis is the interior tension in man of being drawn towards God. Zetesis is the search for the truth of existence as emergent from being drawn by God. And if I may anticipate myself for a moment, I note that this language exhibits or Vogelin's order of being, which is a special term for him. It is the indefinable totality of what is God, nature, man, and society. Human obligation arises from reason itself. C.S. Lewis points out that the natural law, which he calls in Abolition of Man, the Tao, is reason itself. And St. Thomas's exposition of this, uh, which doubtlessly Lewis read, and whether he was thinking about it when he wrote Abolition of Man, of course, is another question, but it's uh, Summa Theologiae 179, I think it's uh, 11, Article 11. Uh, <clears throat> The natural law is reason itself. This obligation is always towards excellence, arete, binding man as human to this first-rate task in life, and therefore to an ongoing awareness of imminent failure. Short-term pessimism, long-term optimism, as Tolkien had it. The uphill struggle of life is a long, rough ascent from Plato's cave. It's the exodus ex Egypto of the Bible multiple times. <clears throat> it requires mental toughness, that is courage, whose chief act is always perseverance. Without the exercise of personal agency, a properly human life cannot be had. This much said about duty and agency and still following Joseph Pieper. We should ask what is the source of this properly human kinesis? What is its ultimate justification? The ultimate source, capital U, capital S, of this obligation and its final end, capital E, the final end of leisure are the same. Pieper says, the heart of leisure consists in festival. And festival means to experience and to live out a harmony with the world in a manner quite different from that of everyday life. It also means that no more intensive harmony with the world can be thought of than the praise of God, the worship of the creator of this world. Now notice there's a coordination of thought. There is a coordination of thought between Pieper and Vogelin, as suggested above. Both understand that, albeit enigmatically, the same order of being, and therefore the same deficiency that ensues, from the denial of God are very real and very important. Vogelin refers to this defect as logophobic, fearful of meaning, intelligibility. You see why he used the Greek. And he refers to the condition of the mind in such a situation as having narcissistic closure because it has apostatically revolted against God. And, such, and in such a case, any eschaton, if there is any eschaton, must be merely imminent. It is God who is the fons obligationis, the eternal law, the principle of all order, first and final. 
In sum, leisure is a sine qua non of culture, which elevates man above the level of the beasts of the field, because only in leisure does man meet the permanent things, in Russell Kirk's famous term. Culture, in turn, rests indispensably on worship and therefore on God, the sine qua non of <coughs> sacred order in human life. Part two. 75 years after <coughs> Joseph Pieper wrote These Are the Basis of Culture in 2023 now, the fact situation has changed, but the logic of leisure and culture has not. Because leisure is the foundation of culture, by a parity of reasoning, the vice at Chadia is the foundation of anti-culture. Anti-culture is the name proposed by Philip Reif in The Triumph of the Therapeutic to label the still present large social condition. As Reif's word says, anti-culture is the opposite of true culture. It is the simultaneously fearful, logophobic, Vogelin's term, and aggressive destruction of what is properly human. Vogelin refers to this as deculturation, deformation, derailment, despiritualization, all consequent upon apostatic revolt. The human self in this context lives in a state of narcissistic closure, and as I shall attempt to explain or at least describe shortly. For now, let it, be, let it be enough to say that this closed self lives in rejection of the good, and therefore of what is, and has refused the search for order. The closed self, for, for those who are a little bit familiar with Charles Taylor, is not quite the same thing, but related closely to uh, Taylor's notion of the buffered self. Uh, <clears throat> Throughout his life, from graduate school at Columbia University and onward, John Sr. fought the good fight against what he called the flight from reality, and correspondingly for the restoration of realism. Now, this caught Sr.'s attention in literary examples, such as in his study of 19th century decadence, as known as Baudelaire uh, and Wilde, for example. The flight from reality is also ex exhibited in uh, <clears throat> philosophical examples, as we shall see. The flight from reality is a way to say <coughs> say that <coughs> sorry that again, I'm sorry. The flight from reality is a way to say that the story of modern philosophy by and large is an exhibit of the Roman proverb, Naturum repellis et tamanusque recessit, or I forgot to say Naturum repellis furca, or pitchfork. Uh, <coughs> I do not claim that the philosophical or even the philosophical and literary factors provide a complete etiology of today's civilizational failure. Further, various factors such as wars, kingships, weather, climate, religion, economy, disease, and the deployment of machines all play parts, as well as other things. The philosophical cases below them are, while even only a thread in the tragic story, nevertheless play their part in that tale of deculturation. <clears throat> Historically, uh, there are ideas, time bombs, uh, uh, so to speak, an expression I borrow from Michael Davies. Uh, historically, there, there are ideas, time bombs, one might say, that yield the consequences of all our woes as Milton would have it. 
Uh, and these have been on offer in a growing catalog since the 14th century when William of Ockham insisted that the true natures of things are unknowable, inaccessibly hidden behind mere appearances which alone are available to human knowledge. In consequence, of the, in consequence <clears throat> the natural law was unknowable, despite the vital truth that law is a path to virtue. Morality becomes a matter of will alone in a, in a knowable world that soon collapses in, soon historically and by implication would collapse into imminence. Machiavelli sub, uh, subverted the role of virtue in life, not only in his political doctrine, but in his linguistic distortion of making virtus into virtu, power, and letting power eclipse goodness. It cannot be merely coincidental that the father of real politic is a cunning manipulator of language. In his eponymous book, Joseph Pieper shows the link between the abuse of language and the abuse of power. Antonio Gramsci found in Machiavelli a version of immanentism in his neglect of the transcendent. Machiavelli's political doctrine contains also implicitly an egoist anthropology and an empirical epistemology. Descartes' universal deployment of the method of mathematics made moral reasoning impossible because good and evil are not quantitative and there is no possible derivation of quantity from, of quality from quantity which is the sole domain of mathematics. Nor by the same token is there reason to know human ends because mathematics prescinds from final causality nor of God. And Descartes' inability to deliver his promised treatment of ethics, moreover, betokens the loss of value, both moral and aesthetic. In every inquiry, his quest for certainty eclipses the search for truth. The former is subjective, the latter is objective. <clears throat> Francis Bacon excoriated, famously, excoriated the wisdom of the Greeks. His empiricism and his denial of formal causality and substance put moral wisdom beyond the scope of knowledge because virtue and vice are not empirically knowable and because virtue resides in the actuality of form as its finality. The Baconian emphasis on mastery and possession of nature implies not only that man may master the natural world and its forces, even torturing them in his word, uh, but also that nature itself is to some extent malleable Spinoza's reduction of God to nature, <clears throat> evidenced by his well-deserved excommunication from the synagogue, forced any eschatological thinking to be immanentized, to be placed, if at all, in this world. Spinoza's heaven would have to be on earth, that is, in nature. Only 100 years after its publication, Thomas More's incisive and decisive utopia has been forgotten. In C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, there's an apostate Anglican priest who expresses a version of the Spinozist eschatology. He says, quote, when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth, he meant that it is. <laughs> <laughs> Moreover, Spinoza's fatalism presages the culture of victimhood, as do Leibniz's windowless monads ineluctably moving the serene and preordained army. In Thomas Hobbes, we find the first political atheist uh, who overtly makes the state the mortal god 
which rules by brute strength of servile fear, will, wielding creative power over good and evil by raw will. Hobbes's materialism, with its logically necessary denial of natures and freedom, forces him too into immanentism. In this, neither Hobbes nor Spinoza was without antecedent in Bacon and Descartes, and as in Bacon, Descartes, and Spinoza, the end of man becomes the relief of the human estate or commodious living. Partly because he is heir to Hobbes, John Locke's nature remains plastic or malleable. Nature is for, for Locke perhaps a less odious condition, but is nevertheless to be escaped. In a continuing degeneration from Bacon and Descartes, in whose thought nature could be mastered and even tortured by human power, for Locke, rising from a pre-political state of nature, political society is shaped, molded, fabricated by an almost purely human contract, although it has to be allowed that felicitously Locke was inconsistent, admitted the influence of both common sense and of Richard Hooker and was in that way rescued, at least to some significant extent, from his flaws. It is not to be admitted that Locke contributed to the deformation of anthropology by saying, in the essay on human understanding, that substance is an I know not what. With David Hume, all trace of nature, science, order, meaning, and transcendence are lost irretrievably, and it must, as it must fall, as must follow consistently from radical empiricism's denial of substance and causality. And in so doing, Hume inadvertently gave birth to Kant. Penultimately in this little recital is Kant's gift to the future of yet another time bomb. That is the notion of mind as factory, as Copernican revolution and epistemology. The real, or whatever may remain of the real, is asserted to be beyond knowing leaving the very act of knowing to be determinative of its own object. <laughs> At his death in 1804, Kant was still served by his residual Lutheranism and its doctrine of an accessible and universal moral law, but this was not to endure <clears throat> for many more years. Moralism is by its nature fragile. Nietzsche brought modernity to its tragic end, and in so doing, he rendered the transcendent not merely, in, not merely invisible and unimportant, but non-existent. In Carl Truman's words, Nietzsche, quote, calls the bluff of the Enlightenment and challenges those who have sloughed off the shackles of traditional Christianity to have the courage to take the full measure of what they have done. In a well-known passage from the Gay Science, Nietzsche says, God is dead, God remains dead, and it may be easy to overlook the importance and the power, the weight of the very next and last sentence in the passage. We have killed him. Nietzsche, as Truman points out, imputes conscious intentionality to the matter of atheism. The birth of the utterly the birth of the utterly malleable man has been achieved by the death of a thousand cups. As in the gospel, man has cast himself into the outer darkness. Patrimony of modern philosophy has been six items. Patrimony, the patrimony of modern philosophy has been intellectual myopia, 
rendering the transcendent first invisible, then unreal. In this smaller realm, the only place for any eschaton is imminent, the sacred order is denied, and then divine eruption is precluded a priori. Patrimony of modern, of modern philosophy has been largely empiricistic itself and in its implications, and this is also severely myopic, making int intelligence, insight, intus legere impossible because accidents veil substance where natures and divine ectypes are to be found. Substance where nature and divine ectypes are to be found. Modern philosophy has isolated persons, either via empiricism or via the <clears throat> absorption of persons into the one substance or via the ignorance of substance or via the windowless character of monads or via the exclusive subjectivity of knowing. In each case, attention is inward rather than self-transcending. Four. The imagination of the person as per se plastic or malleable, ready to be made by will or passion or chance alone. Number five, poesis has, been, has substituted for mimesis. This is one of Carl Truman's thematic points. With respect to experien the experiential material world and to the very self. Last the rejection of history and tradition. Chesterton's democracy of the dead is impossible. These elements, of course, overlap and can be cataloged differently. The first and second parts of this paper may be succinctly and trenchantly summarized this way following C.S. Lewis and the Abolition of Man. It's a very familiar passage, but um, <clears throat> it's wonderful to recite. Quote, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men, and the solution was a technique. And both, in the practice of this technique, are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. The last part. <clears throat> Crossing now into the present day, it must be mentioned that modernity is paradoxical, uh, as Vogelin and many others have observed. Modernity has indeed brought us the benefits of medicine, longevity, uh, and a better material standard of living. Right now, I'm just sort of guessing that longevity is good. <laughs> yeah. It'll take a while if I become convinced of that. Uh, um, but it has also brought us atomic bombs, threatened global ecology, and rendered men and women sterile. Are we better off? Have the benefits justified the price? Does any advantage justify falsehood? I will only remark here that Plato and Cicero thought not. Cicero, what is not morally right is not advantageous. The pertinent variation uh, of Cicero's oft-repeated principle is that what is false cannot be per se humanly, false per se, I'm sorry, cannot be humanly advantageous. Best place is, uh, best place to read this if you read the De Officiis, it's just threaded through. You, you'd have a weekend exercise if you wanted to find all of the places where Cicero says that just in the De Officiis. <clears throat> Modern thought has, in some, and despite exceptions and despite paradoxes, delivered a yield of principles that, re that render culture impossible. 
and in fact have even raised an army of ideas against it. <clears throat> the net refusal of culture is the end of a 600 year plus long gathering slide into anti-culture. Referring to this as a gathering slide is a wonderful expression owed to Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh -huh. Of course. Just what he would say. Uh, <clears throat> this disorder, this sickness of the soul, is what Vogelin calls a <clears throat> pneumopathology. And it's important to pause over that exact term because Vogelin has a very good reason uh, for using a, a neologism and he has a good definition of it. Uh, uh, pneumopathology is a spiritual disease. So this is distinguished from psychopathology. Okay. Pneumopathology uh, is a spiritual disease whose primary symptom is arbitrarily omitting an element of reality in order to create the fantasy of a new world. <clears throat> so this disorder, this sickness of the soul, this pneumopathology is achadia which St. Thomas defines as a tristitia de bono divino, an atadium operandi. R.J. Snell notes that, quote, Achadia has become a cultural reality, nestled deep in the roots of contemporary ways of acting and living, sloth seeps into life and dwells in virtually every domain, end quote. Achadia, in other words, has made the long march through the institutions of modern life. Uh, Snell further uh, describes Achadia uh, by the character it stamps on the person. And this description serves to define its meaning, which uh, is impossible to render directly and simply into English. So Snell says the following in this way, quote, the slothful, number one, abhor the real. That's Vogelin's logophobia. Number two, have a repugnance, sadness at their own purpose. And number three, are incapable of acting in keeping with their own proper good a profound self-contradiction and alienation. Unable to love the world or to perform good work, the slothful are bored and nihilistic, seeing nothing compelling or delightful in reality or in their own selves. Thus, Snell. Jean-Charles Nant, a uh, Benedictine, uh, uh, I believe French Benedictine monk, adds when he's talking about the daughters of Achadia, that Achadia this way includes, quote, faint-heartedness, cowardice, which yields a lack of agency, or as we might say, a sense of victimhood. Achadia is sad because sad because sadness is the terminus of hatred. And this hatred changes gratitude not merely into ingratitude, ingratitude but into anti-gratitude, as Matthew Crawford has recently noted. For all these reasons, Achadia is anti-cultural, anti-religious, and a deformation of the soul. An agritudo, as Cicero uses the term in the Tusculan Disputations. And that passage in the, I think, part three in the Tusculan Disputations, Vogelin discusses uh, uh, over several pages in the fifth volume of Order and History. Uh, <clears throat> in the secular age, um, Charles Taylor offers his own neologism, social imaginary, uh, a very useful, uh, very useful expression. Uh, and he, the social imaginary identifies the world in which a society lives according to their own climate of opinion. Uh, the, that may be, uh, I, I find it easier to think of this or to figure out what this means uh, by seeing that it is analogous to literary imaginaria 
for instance, Tolkien's Middle Earth, or Jane Austen's usage of the whole world uh, about uh, her uh, uh, rural, uh, rural gentrified uh, England, or of Barset in Trollope's eponymous novels. The social imaginary in which we live <clears throat> is identifiable by its failures. The flight from reality named by John Sr. has reached its end in a pathological psychic state of unknowing, annoia, in Vogelin's term, taken from Plato. This condition, as following Vogelin's naming, is a condition that in fact fears the real. It is logophobic. It is a worse condition than mental illness. Logophobia is a disease of the human spirit, a pneumopathology, such that man has abandoned his place in the order of being, no longer taking his, state, his status as below God within the nature and charged to make the, political, uh, the, make the political from the absolutely primary model, what Father Schall calls the order in God. The work of Plato, Aristotle and Cicero contribute directly to Vogelin's exploration of anoia. And here I want to attempt a diagnosis of the sickness of modern man, of Truman's modern self. Within the new self-made social imaginary, man suffers mental perturbations that are peculiar to this day and which are accelerated. Immediately in the wake of World War II, Viktor Frankl famously named anxiety, depression, aggression, and suicide as the mental illnesses of a man without meaning, his most fundamental need. Frankl touched the same matters as did Vogelin a generation later, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and now Carl Truman. <clears throat> Central among these and generative of the rest is Plato's Anoia recalled in Cicero's Agritudine, a sickness of the soul, which is a morbus onomy, which Vogelin translates as noetic morbidity. Uh, he, also call, he, Cicero, also calls this an aspernatio rationis, the rejection of reason. Anoia, as its etymology indicates, is the condition of nous, or the human mind, that is narcissistically closed, not merely from the order of being, but which refuses to seek the real, rejects what is, and thus also the good, the true, and worst of all, the transcendent. The community of order, uniting thought, and being, alive in Greek thinking, is absent in Anoia. For Plato, as for Heraclitus, the philosopher is the man awake who communicates to his society the knowledge of its right order. I think that's in volume five of uh, Order and History. Concretely, the individual person, in the individual person then, Anoia is intimate with Achadia, the vice opposed to leisure's meeting with the real and grateful response. Anoia Maybe this works, see what you think. Anoia is an essential note, specific note or formal note, of Achadia, and the anti-culture is both a precondition and an effect of Achadia. Now, as merely sketched here, these basic ideas require much, much further development. It's also crucial to see them displayed in the concrete. None is without painful existential bite. 
Michael Knowles refers to the, quote, infiltration into cultural institutions, including Hollywood, corporate America, mainstream media, technology, higher education, lower education, and civic associations. Some further examples would be the tribalism of identity politics, particularly as uh, explicated by Joshua Mitchell in a recent book called uh, American Awakening. Uh, <clears throat> growing, social uh, growing social obligation and its uh, growing social isolation and its contribution to ripening totalitarianism, as uh, prophesied perhaps by Hannah Arendt. And the multifaceted failures of America's uh, 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 of education in America, illustrated almost comically by the brutal irony of Harvard's motto. If you don't remember, it's Veritas. Uh, <clears throat> Furthermore, the failure of soi-disant Catholic schools not merely to fight the anti-culture, but in their capitulation to it, ignorant that it even exists, is another example. The universalization of expressionistic individualism in corporate policy and advertising and in gender ideology, in the nascent movement for voluntary human extinction, all of the, the final, which is the final conquest of nature, all of these things are exhibits. Um, I think very recently uh, that not so much that it failed, but that the wiser actually thought that they could sell beer with a um, um, odd picture on the, on the can. <laughs> uh, so, conclusion. A long, apostatically revolutionary war of ideas and other forces has despiritualized and narcissistically closed the modern self in its social imaginary, leaving men isolated, logophobic, malleable and without inherent meaning, and pneumopathologically anti-grateful, dwelling in a self-made anti-culture. I want to thank everybody because uh, I, was, I continue to be afraid that this has been very uh, pedestrian and very abecedarian, uh, and therefore you have exhibited great patience. Thank you. <laughs> If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.com dot edu slash cts.